Have you ever wondered who is doing the research that will impact your future? The Research Made Possible podcast lets you meet those people and learn how research, scholarship, and creative activity at the University of Kentucky is changing what's possible in Kentucky and beyond. Here's Alicia Gregory, Director of Research Communications. Heritage science is all around us. It's there in ancient footprints in Mammoth Cave. It's there in a mall, a tool for breaking and crushing made by some of the earliest native Kentuckians. And heritage science is here at the University of Kentucky, thanks to a new $14 million National Science Foundation Mid-Scale Infrastructure Grant. Today we'll meet Brent Seals, Suzanne Smith, Corey Baker, and John Balk from the UK College of Engineering. These researchers are partnering on Educe Lab. We begin with computer science professor and Educe Lab principal investigator, Brent Seals. Heritage science is so varied in the kinds of questions that we can ask and how the science can help us answer those questions. In the bourbon industry, for example, you'll find that they've gone through hard times, lean times, and boom times, and we're in a boom time right now. But all of that heritage, much of it is encompassed in the life in the Rick House, for example. If you go to Jim Beam, you'll find that on the fifth floor of the Rick House, they have barrels that have been signed by people who worked there in 1920s. With heritage science, we can record those signatures. We can capture them using cameras. We can store them, and then we can make them available in a library for people who are interested in who those folks were, why they were there, what happened to them, what their history was. That's an example of a problem in heritage science that the infrastructure could help solve. It turns out that there are all kinds of pieces of history in Mammoth Cave, right here in Kentucky, that remain unassembled in terms of a formal library because they're located in the place. Things that are in the cave, footprints, paintings, carvings, even the geography of the place. How does one capture that and then answer questions about who the people were, why were they there, how does it relate to history? That heritage question of all of the different things around the development of Mammoth Cave are questions we can start to answer using equipment like ground penetrating radar, spectral cameras, drones that can fly and capture geometry, chemical analysis of soils. These things become accessible as problems we can solve and as scientific inquiry when we have the equipment that allows us to dig into the questions around the heritage of a place like Mammoth Cave. I have become well known for trying to solve one of the hardest problems that I've faced in heritage science, and that is to read the Herculaneum scrolls. And along the way, in my attempt to do that, we've managed to build technologies that have done some amazing revelations. This work, the context of this work, has created for me an opportunity to be able to expand from that very focused question of, can we read what's inside a scroll, to this broader question of, what are the heritage science problems that are available right here in Kentucky, right here in the, in the Southeast, and what kind of equipment could we assemble here at the University of Kentucky that would enable everyone in this area to pose and then answer those questions. So the work that I've done with scrolls and with ancient manuscripts is very much the genesis of this broader run at being able to 
build that infrastructure at Kentucky, rally some of the best professors and researchers here around that theme, and begin to build a world-class laboratory that allows us to pose and then answer some of those questions. And so we really just went after it hard with the confident idea that our prior work and that the idea of the team we put together would be really strong. The tools that we use to do science uh, applied to heritage situations are really varied. So we wanted to put together clusters or groups of instrumentation that would cover most of the scenarios that heritage scientists are interested in working. Educe Lab has four parts, flex, bench, mobile, and cyber. And the four main clusters that we arrived at were modeled by the European approach to heritage science, where laboratories that have bench equipment uh, provide a way to do very careful analysis in a laboratory environment. A flexible system allows you to configure the equipment for the variety of things that you see in a heritage context. There's so much variety in the way human-made artifacts express themselves that there isn't a one-size-fits-all set of instruments. We also have a mobile unit that allows us to go out on-site and analyze and answer questions about things that are in the field. Archaeological digs, architecture, as-built infrastructure that it's not possible to bring to the lab. You can also imagine using mobile equipment to go to another institution that has valuable collections that aren't going to be able to travel. We could set up in the parking lot of an institution like that and do meaningful work. And then finally, the cyber infrastructure allows us not only to manage the data science, but it allows us to build inspired algorithms around the AI environment, artificial intelligence, and data science environment that is driving so many pieces of technology today. I believe that once this infrastructure is in place, we will see an acceleration of projects and objects that represent for many people big technical challenges that because we didn't have the infrastructure couldn't be approached. It's going to be a little bit like going to a picnic and realizing that everybody brought their own lunch and they're all going to bring it out and share. And that's what's going to happen. We're going to see an amazing display of objects that we didn't know existed, problems that we now can solve. We're building this infrastructure for the community. It's going to function as a user facility. And what's really important about that is that we're bridging what we think is a big gap across the country geographically. There's world-class equipment and material at the Getty, for example, one coast, also at the Smithsonian, another coast. But we're in the middle of the country and we have all kinds of institutions and projects and people who aren't going to have access to that infrastructure. So being able to give them access to infrastructure through the NSF's funding is crucial in terms of our geography. It's just not possible for every university, for every research lab, to be able to have some of the equipment that we're going to be able to acquire through this program. What's wonderful and brilliant about the NSF's vision, which we strongly embrace, is that we can build this infrastructure in our location and then show people how it's done, and then we can see that be replicated in other strategic places in the country. There's real strength and power in interdisciplinary work. I, I believe that very deeply. My work has benefited so many times from being able to talk with people who are in other disciplines being able to understand their insights, being able to learn from them. 
one of the key hallmarks of the team we've put together, the Educe Lab team, is that we have disciplinary diversity that brings that magic together. I have a researcher who is an expert in archaeology and anthropology, biological anthropology, in fact, and his insight into understanding those archaeological sites and the artifacts that come from them is crucial. And I don't have any experience in that area. We need to be able to capture information across an archaeological site or perhaps a burial site that can't be captured any other way than with drone technology. We have a member of our team who is an absolute expert, a world-class expert at building and running drones. That expert is mechanical engineering professor Suzanne Smith. She heads the mobile part of Educe Lab. So the mobile piece has two parts to it. One part is where we can take instrumentation to a museum and look at smaller objects at the museum. But the other part of it, which is very exciting, and that really pulls in all the expertise that Mike Sama, Sean Bailey, and I have together, is where we take unmanned aerial systems, UAS, out into the field and do what we would call a field campaign. And in that field campaign, we do all kinds of measurements from the air over a larger area. And what's great about this is this can give us the historical context of that whole larger area. It's just such a bigger scale of where that history has happened. And whether that's a cemetery or whether that's something related to the extent of Mammoth Cave or whether it's something that's a former industrial site that is now residential area, but there's some kind of historic remnant of that industrial site that people really care about knowing today. There are all kinds of things that you need that slightly larger scale, but from close enough or closer than a manned aircraft would be able to give you. There are a lot of different sensors that you could fly in order to give you this larger context. And a, and a lot of these sensors are imaging with different parts of the spectrum. Some of it is visible spectrum, so it's not just taking pictures. It's using all different kinds of sensors that can give different perspectives on the shapes that are being measured and, and can even see through some of the materials. We're talking about things like aerial LIDAR that give you really accurate surface imagery. Mike Sama is really great at instrumentation and remote sensing, and Sean Bailey is really great at bringing data together from a lot of different sensors and really conducting you know, these larger field campaigns and working with this kind of equipment. And so all of us together ha have worked together for a long time and, and really bring a lot to bear for this. We're going to be testing and calibrating and commissioning all of this equipment at what we call our Wildcat Agricultural and Atmospheric Research Pavilion. We call it WARP. It, it's just north of town here, but we're also going to be able to set up for users or communities that are interested in the heritage science and, and being able to use this infrastructure could actually be able to come in and see them in action in advance. And we're excited about that too, because interaction with those communities is so important as we plan any kind of campaign where we go and gather information about a heritage site that's really important to their culture or to their community.
We know that community involvement, even before you plan the campaign, is going to be a key to success of this heritage science research. But even after that, you want everybody to be able to come. And so our equipment is designed in such a way that while, say, the UAS are flying You'll be able to see data displayed with the mobile van. We're going to have external displays so that the community can be involved and they can actually see this information coming in and be able to understand how much is going to have to be looked at after the fact. But also, there are going to be exciting discoveries that happen in the moment, and they'll be able to be right there and part of that as well. So how does the team plan to get data from the UAVs to the mobile van, especially in locations without internet? That's where Corey Baker's expertise comes in as the cyber part of Educe Lab. So my area of research is typically in wireless communications when internet is limited or non-existent. And how do you build systems and applications to disseminate information? So of course, those areas are typically related to natural disasters, developing areas, rural areas. And so if internet's limited there, how do you propagate information? There's a lot of devices going around when it comes to the mobile vehicles or the unmanned vehicles themselves, the UAVs. They'll pick up data, transfer data, but many times they may not have internet connectivity. And so how do you store that information and essentially forward it at another time? And then in addition, building mobile applications that the different entities such as the anthropologists or just the people in the community that, that might use to input information. So uh, most applications are set up for internet, meaning that they can only be used if you have connections there. But how do you store information to the device first, make it still operable for the, the person, and then take that information back and pass it to the cloud for central data storage later? Sure, there, it presents many challenges. One is depending on what's being captured, the data is going to come in many different sizes. The data that I'm typically looking at is usually a few megabytes or up to maybe 10, 15, like a size of a photo or something. And so in these scenarios, when you're looking at the UAVs capturing like ground penetrating information, this data could be large. And so if a strong connection is there, that's helpful because then you can just push it straight to the cloud. But if it's not, you have to ensure that you have enough data storage on a device to uh, be able to disseminate the information later. And so the UAVs, they're going to have a certain storage on them. You might have to add additional pieces for them to be able to carry this information since the internet might not be available. So they kind of determine what the data is. And then we have to figure out a way of getting it to not necessarily straight to the cloud, but if we can get it back to the vehicle, then we know we can get it to the cloud because we'll have servers in the vehicles. If it's large, we might have to compress it. And so it might be in formats that look different initially that need to be converted over for the actual end researcher to take advantage of. Since it is heritage science and there's many different, say, anthropologists, researchers, the community involved, the parts that come into play typically is mobile applications. And so in order to design these applications in a way that's going to be useful to all entities, you have to go through the proper process of co-design, meaning that whether I'm a computer scientist, somebody's an anthropologist, whether somebody lives in a particular community that we're trying to assist with this type of infrastructure, we're sitting down in the same place and we say, what do these applications need to have in them for you to be able to use? How do you design in a way, say buttons are, are placed correctly, 
the language inside the applications designed in a way that's going to be familiar and, and easy for you to use. Even when you're going back into presenting the data to, say, people in the community or to the researchers, how do you convey that information in a way that they can take advantage of it? If you can display the data in a way to where it says you help gather information from this particular area in this way, they can then further proceed to learn from that and then gather other types of information. If you present or design clunky applications that don't have the end user in mind, then you know it can be a great piece of technology, but it, get, it never gets taken advantage of. It's designed to make a difference. And a difference while people are using it, while we're actively collecting data, or also in a way to inspire people to think of different use cases of the, the types of tools and applications and infrastructure that we're laying out. A lot of times, I think a computer scientist or engineers, we can get stuck in a situation where we're building technology and we're only thinking about how we would use it. I mean, I guess that could be okay, but that's not where the real benefits comes to designing for me. Technology should be an enabler. And in this case, infrastructure as an enabler. And I, I can't wait to see what happens with it just because I think we're going to put out some initial things from what we learn. And then that's going to allow the community and the researchers to take it to a whole level. I think in order to solve these types of problems, you have to have uh, the different areas involved. You have to have a, a good understanding of the, the types of process that anthropologists typically go through when they're trying to assess these areas, which for the most part, technically, usually engineers are not as familiar with. Right. And so if you're going to build tools to work in these scenarios, you have to have that well-rounded understanding in, of people to provide their expertise to solve the problem. I really look at this as an interdisciplinary project. It has to be interdisciplinary to solve the project or to provide a great infrastructure and solution to the area. And I think undergrads and other graduate students are going to benefit extremely from it. Looking at it from the computer science students that may be involved in other engineering students, it basically encourages them to start thinking out of the box a different way as opposed to the great way, but you know, limited perspective that they might get in just engineering and computer science courses. Chemical and materials engineering professor John Balk heads the bench part of Educe Lab. So I'm a materials engineer and I look at what materials are made of. So the elements, the phases, that helps us understand how a specimen was, was made in the first place and the technology that was used to create it. And so I apply that to metals and alloys or ceramics that are used in industry. But we can also apply that to cultural heritage artifacts. So it's, it's definitely a new application space for me. But we can apply these scientific techniques and really learn about the material, the artifact, and put that in the right context of cultural heritage. I'm the director of the Electron Microscopy Center at UK. We serve the entire campus community and we have users and customers from across the state and region. And again, that's mostly on the technical side, let's say the, the scientific or applied science side, but we can just as easily apply that to cultural heritage. It's not really done in a lot of places, but what we're gonna be able to do with this new equipment that we're getting in the bench part of the Aduce Lab grant is, is, is build out from the Electron Microscopy Center base and really have a comprehensive suite of instruments to fully characterize materials. And if we look at it going from macro or what we can see with our eyes to micro and nano, what we need an electron microscope for, you know, we'll start off with, uh, with optical 3D scanners that allow us to, to map out in terms of 3D topography, but also just high resolution XY scanning across a sample, see in detail what 
we would be able to visualize just with our eyes, but, but see it at a much finer scale, and then bring that to x-ray tomography. Most people are familiar with a CT scan that allows you to see what's inside of a patient's body. We can apply the same technique, just with different instrumentation, to a cultural heritage artifact. So we'll be able to see inside. And ideally, what we'll do is we'll pair the optical scanning with the three-dimensional tomographic scanning and overlay those so that you can see, okay, we see what's on the surface, but now we can see inside the material. And then we can move on to other techniques. X-ray fluorescence is a big technique here. We'll have multiple X-ray fluorescence machines that allow us to to really see the, the, the chemical makeup of a sample across a broad area. One of the instruments is actually able to scan samples that are around two by three feet in size. So you could map out an entire painting, for example. Right? And so sometimes you'll have paintings where an old painting was covered up with a new painting. And XRF is a good technique for not only mapping out what's in the new painting, but detecting what's below that in the original painting and doing it non-destructively. Going down in length scale from there, we go to our electron microscopes. We will acquire two scanning electron microscopes for a DUCE lab. One of them will be an all-purpose one with a fairly large chamber, and the other one will be, will be much more specialized in terms of its ability to do surface scanning, but also high-resolution imaging. It'll be the highest resolution scanning electron microscope in the university and also in the state, as far as I know. It'll be very capable. And so we'll really be able to run the gamut from macro or what we can see with our eyes to, to the nanoscale. The good thing is materials science and engineering permeates a lot of science and engineering fields and, and it underlies a lot of technological advancement. So we're used to working with people outside of our formal discipline. And we also have a perspective that's a little bit different from a typical engineering perspective. We look at it not just from an engineering perspective, but as the name implies, from a fundamental science viewpoint. We want to understand what a material is made of, why it was made that way, why its structure gives it the properties that it, that it has. And in cultural heritage, maybe there are some structural properties, but a lot of times it's uh, aesthetic or ornamental. But you know, in these cultural heritage uh, fields. Materials are used for what they can convey visually. And in addition to that, we, we want to understand why that particular material was chosen, how it was made. It allows us to contribute to really understanding the full context of what these cultural heritage artifacts are. I think it also aligns well with NSF's focus these days on large-scale grants that embody convergence, right? So converging with different and disparate fields often to tackle bigger problems. Normally, materials scientists don't work with anthropologists. We work with computer scientists. Big data is a, is a very big issue right now in materials characterization. But yeah, without opportunities like this that NSF is giving us, we wouldn't necessarily be able to bring our perspective and techniques to bear on this issue. In a way, it's makes me a little uncomfortable, pushing me outside of my comfort zone, but it's a great opportunity. I think it's great to be able to work with new colleagues. Right? We have a very comprehensive university. The climate nowadays is, is really even more supportive and, and pushing people towards that, which is good because that's where the national funding landscape has moved. And we should be doing big picture projects like this. So we will be unique in the country in terms of our characterization efforts as applied to heritage science. 
I think that's one reason why NSF gave us the grant. I and materials characterization play a role in that. I would not claim that we are the reason we got it, but I think it really does give us some uniqueness. And I also think there are lots of opportunities, depending on depending on how we bring people in or how many people really come to us as, as a national center. I think we might very soon be busier than we expected fielding all of these requests and working on heritage science. Learn more about EDUCE Lab in our second podcast. Thank you for listening to the Research Made Possible podcast. To subscribe to our podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes, search University of Kentucky Research Media and click news on our site, research.uky.edu.